Hi everyone and welcome back to Marketing Careers Uncovered. So I'm here for my second episode joined by Alice Rowan who is a freelance website copy and SEO content writer. I was racking my brains for a bit just thinking how best to introduce Alice and actually I found the probably the best and easiest way in which I could do that is just reading out the first few lines of her LinkedIn profile which which states no bullshit, no jargon, clear website copy, an SEO content writer, professional content detangler and search engine wrangler. So um, yeah, I definitely couldn't have done better better myself. Um, thanks for joining us, Alice. Thank you very much for having me. So um, as we as, as we often do with these chats, um, it'd be really good for you just to give us a little bit of an overview of what you're, um, what you're doing now. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so as you already said, I am a freelancer. I am self-employed. Uh, it, it took me a long journey to get here and I'm sure we'll get into that soon. Um, loving the self-employed life. I primarily write website copy, but I also dig into um, my clients' websites and check their SEO. The amount of times people get in their own way purely because there's a whole bunch of stuff that no one ever told them existed that they don't know that they need. So a big part of my job is digging into their CMS and creating content for them and stuff that ticks all the boxes that search engines like, and then um, writing website copy and basically just fixing things, making sure that their businesses are clearly presented, people know what they need, they stand out, they don't sound like everyone else, um, and also that Google can actually see them and help them be seen by other people. Brilliant. And what type of clients do you typically work with? Is it a particular size, sector? Honestly, it's a huge range. Um, my personal favourites are independent creatives and like small to medium businesses. So I've worked with everyone from like one of my current clients is um, an illustrator. He creates custom fonts and does illustration for like book covers and packaging and stuff. But then I've also worked for a big IT services and consultancy firm in London. I wrote their website. So it's all over the shop in terms of sector. Yeah, I just quite, like quite to, a range, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. it is. Um, I personally really like to work with either one person or where I'm working directly with the CEO or like the one marketing person in-house. Um, part of, and again, we'll, we'll get into this later, I... I love working one-on-one -on -one with people and I love communicating one-on-one -on -one with people. What I don't love is when you suddenly have 50,000 people involved in the review process. There's really long onboarding processes and it gets very bogged down and my work gets lost. I don't think anyone particularly enjoys those um, those, those kind of projects. I mean, un unless you're a complete sadist, really. Yeah, they're often yeah, quite, quite like challenging pieces of work, aren't they? I dip my toe into the kind of more enterprise world and uh, it bit me in the arse. So I, do, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> well, joy of a freelance life. You don't you don't have to. You can say, yeah, no. I, I just also feel like I can make a much bigger difference to a small business than I can to a large company. To a large company, I am just a disposable asset to a small business or an independent business owner. I am not only creating work for them, but potentially like teaching them fundamental skills that they need to develop their business. And that's just so much more meaningful to me. 
if I sort of, you know, parachuted back in time and met a, you know, a far younger Alice, is this something you always had and I had a sort of inkling of, of, of doing or did you just sort of fall into, um, into this as a career? So, they, OK, I'm going to tell you a story and it's a story that has served me very well across job interviews in my life. And a number of people have accused me of it being absolute bullshit. And I promise you it's not. Um, when I was about seven or eight years old, I used to have innocent smoothies, the mango one, obviously, superior flavour, in my lunch boxes at school. And I was absolutely fascinated by they would have like little stories and little games and stuff on the back of the cartons, which I loved. And I I think I went home one day and I asked my mum, I was like, how does that get there? Like, why are there stories? And she was like, oh, that's someone's job. And that kind of set something in my head of like, when I'm older, I want to be someone who writes cool stuff. It wasn't any deeper than that. I was like a seven or eight year old. Um, You're right. That totally does sound made up. It sounds like bullshit, doesn't it? But I've always been obsessed. (laughs) But I believe you. I believe you. Um, I have I have a fascination with advert strap lines as well. Like there was an advert. I don't know how old I was when this happened. Maybe 10. Um, and it was an American Express advert and it was animated and it was narrated by David Tennant. Um, and I just remember the strap line was impossible. It's two letters too long and it stuck with me. Um, and it's always been little things like that. And I've always like billboards, the Oasis campaigns. It's, it's a wonder I never went into ad copy, um, but that's just the most visible and the most obvious. So I've always been fascinated by it. And then for years, I was like, oh, I'll be an English teacher because I've always told I should be a teacher. I should either be someone who runs a company um, or I should be a teacher. Uh, I kind of realised not too long into starting to pursue that, that I'm not good in front of big groups of people. Um, doing things like Brighton SEO, where I talk for 20 minutes in front of a room of 700 people is fine. But like showing up all day, every day in a big room of people is a bit too much for me um that's a really roundabout way of saying I probably was always destined to end up here I nearly became a teacher and then I didn't because you studied creative writing didn't you so twice (laughs) actually twice Uh, so yeah so I did English language like linguistics and creative writing as my undergrad um with the full intention of it being I'll drop the creative writing after the first year it's just a nice little hobby and I'll stick with the linguistics and I'll become an English teacher um and then I kind of fell in love with the creative writing my lecturers were amazing the class was amazing it it was just truly changed my life those three years so much so that I took a year out and then I went back and did it all over again and I got a master's degree in creative and critical writing um, where I focused a lot on how um, social media has impacted the way that we tell stories. That's really cool. So how did you go about that? It started out project wise as I was going to write a series of short stories that were all like social media was a, a, an integral part of that. And then as I was researching, and I mean, I read dozens upon dozens of books about social media, about surveillance capitalism, the way that Silicon Valley works. I read some short stories and some books about it. But this was in like 2017, 2018, I was doing this research. So social media wasn't as prevalent 
in other forms of media as it is now. Um, and I was doing all the research and I was like, you know what, actually, I think I'm more interested in the way that this is impacting narratives and identity and storytelling structure outside of the this is a book about Instagram kind of thing. So I looked at the, for example, the evolution of I've completely forgotten the technical term for it now and I'm kicking myself but books that are made up of like a series of letters and that's evolved into there are now books that are made up of text messages tweets and all sorts of things like that that was one aspect of it um also the growing popularity of really short narrative structures so if you look at Matt Haig's books um they're incredibly popular and a huge part of that is that sometimes a chapter is a paragraph sometimes a chapter is three pages and it's all broken up into really small chunks so that's quite that's quite forward thinking really so yeah if i if i to pass my mind back to, to you know that 2016 2017 i think i'd had a facebook account for not very long um linkedin was just floundering around a bit as a sort of online cv Mm-hmm. But wasn't really, you know, we we might have been trading pictures and a few. Oh, look, I'm eating a um, I'm eating a bagel at this um, at yeah. this at this nice new cafe. But certainly not to the extent of you know, that that telling of stories like like we see just littered across the whole the whole internet now. Mm. Um, yeah, so it was it was really great, and I really wish that I would have written a book based on my dissertation because now what I wrote about then seems obvious now but it wasn't at the time it was a field of study that was relatively new but i guess all the time while you're looking at all these bits and pieces there's always the the innocent smoothie bottle sort of calling out to you pulling you <laughs> pulling you into that yeah. um, pull, and the thing is while, while i was writing this i was working at an agency still i was like managing instagram accounts and running facebook ads and stuff and i honestly it felt really insidious <laughs> I I was learning about the inner workings of all of these companies and how, frankly, fucked up it all is. Um, And the data collection and and the Cambridge Analytica scandal and all all of that stuff. And I was like running, I suppose, what would now be meta ads, but at the time was Facebook ads campaigns for luxury hospitality clients. And like it just it felt so weird. It was actually after I wrote that dissertation. Um, and this is something that I said to all of my employers and it's something I stick to as a uh, freelancer as well is I don't touch ad copy I don't write ads I'm not interested in programming ads I won't do it because surveillance capitalism scares the shit out of me and I don't want to participate yeah and yeah again one of those joys of being a freelancer is yeah you can set your own boundaries and Mm -hmm. and say well actually this is what I will do and this is what I'm not place i'd really like to start is you know, your first your first marketing role and your, you know your first real step into that um into that workplace environment what was that what was that like 
So this actually started while I was at uni for my undergraduate. A local agency reached out to the course leader and was like, hey, you have writers. Yeah, we need interns. Um, I think five or six of us interviewed me and one other girl got it. She got fired after two days. It was a whole thing. Uh, and then it was just me. I was an unpaid copywriting intern um, and working in the luxury hospitality industry. And uh, it was interesting. Um, they then offered me paid work ongoing because I was also working at Waitrose at the time and working six days a week and trying to study a degree was a bit much so they were like we really like you it's been a few months come and join us and then instead of giving me a salary they gave me basically minimum hourly wage um, which is a whole other thing we can talk about it, it barely raised above minimum wage the entire four years that I was there um, but yeah so it was interesting my first ever client was a carpet company owned by the um best friend or one of the best friends of the guy who ran the agency that I worked at but beyond carpet giant um and I will say now carpet giant the dude who runs it is really lovely and really easy to work with so it was a bit of a boring topic but the client was really nice so it was a good entryway I think because then when I got to start working on like the hotel websites and writing ad copy for spa retreats and stuff, it was it was really, really exciting. And I was like, oh, this is so creative and so fancy. Was it was it much of a learning curve there from that, you know, being parachuted oh, into that? Yeah, 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 yeah. Steep. It was a steep learning curve because I think two or three months now, one thing I will say for that agency is they are renowned around the local area for loving a wave of redundancies. The staff turnover there was horrendous. Um, I survived seven rounds of redundancies in three or four years. Um, the first round of redundancies happened two months after I'd been given a part time job there. I was a junior copywriter and the only other copywriter in the whole company was my boss um, and she got made redundant. So at that point, I am a junior who barely knows what they're doing. And I am the only copywriter in the entire agency. Um, the, the learning curve was steep. It was very, very steep. I love a really challenge. Unsettling. <laughs> oh, everything about that job was unsettling, but I survived it for four years. So <laughs> what what kept you what kept you hanging in there? Cause, yeah, I know plenty of people who oh. would just go, do you know what? Forget this. I mean, I was 20 when I took that job. I didn't know any better. I assumed that all office jobs were that cutthroat and ruthless and brutal and abusive, to be quite honest. Um, but it, aside from the awful people who ran that company, everyone on the ground was amazing. It's one of the things like one of those things like the worse the working environment, the better your co-workers we were such a close-knit group of people because we were fighting against so much shit all of the time and also I was learning so much I was incredibly intellectually and creatively fulfilled at that agency and had it not been run like a total shit show I would probably still be there 
like I loved all of the creative work. That agency is the reason that the second I went freelance, I flocked back to writing websites. Websites are my first love in marketing. Um, you know, and I was at the point where I was pumping out a website a week at that agency, which I will say I don't do that anymore. I don't write a website in a week. I take my time. <laughs> I do my research. And but don't get me wrong, I do some of my best creative work under pressure, but not when I'm at constant burnout. There were two extreme opposing things going on at that agency. On one side, you had the bullying and the burnout, the exhaustion, the really toxic environment. But on the other hand, you had incredible people, really fun projects, amazing creative output. And like the designers that I was working with were exceptional as well. And they were bringing out the best in me as a writer. Um, it's very bittersweet thinking back on my agency days. Like I wouldn't be where I am now without it. No, and I've, you know, I've certainly done done some work agency side myself over the years. Yeah, and I've always found that, yeah, it can be a little bit of a, a pressure cooker type environment. But I think owing to that speed and pace and being yes. exposed to, you know, you, you talk about things like design as, as well and how that can influence, you know, the work you do. So whilst you're, uh, whilst you're honing oh, yeah. those writing skills, actually, yeah, it's operating in a much broader world, isn't it? Yeah, that, oh, I tell you what, my favourite thing about working in an agency, right, is you are surrounded by people, you are in a room of like 40, 50 people, and everyone's purpose is marketing. Everyone's job is marketing. Everyone gets it. Everyone is invested. Everyone cares. Um, so that that was incredible, and I will never forget that, and I still miss it. Um, when I say about the toxic environment, I do want to make it really clear that I have spoken to a number of people who have worked at loads of different agencies about my experience at that specific agency. And all of their reactions have been like, what the actual fuck? So from what I hear, my agency experience was not a normal agency experience. Um, it was it was pretty wild. Um, but yeah, it, it was creatively. It was incredible. And I think freelancing has allowed me to get the agency feel back in terms of I work on a big variety of projects. I have lots of different clients. I work in loads of different industries, but without all of the elements that caused me to crash and burn so badly. So where did you, so sort of, you know, wrapping up, uh, wrapping up at the agency, where did you, where did you head to next? Uh, I so I went from working in this B2C agency of like 40 to 50 people specializing in luxury hospitality to being one of three people in a marketing team at a HR tech company. That's different. Just a bit. Just a bit. Um, it took me, I would say, well over six months to adjust to everything from being trusted by my manager and having basic autonomy over my working hours also I will say as well to the credit of this company this was back in 2018 so this is halfway through my master's degree or 2017 somewhere around there um and they were already doing hybrid working so this is pre-pandemic I was um I worked in the office two days worked from home two days did uni one day um 
which I actually found was a really good balance. I loved that. And yeah, uh, industry-wise, workload-wise, dynamics-wise, completely different. I went from four years of working in a really buzzy office with loud music and full of creative people to being shunned into a corner with me, the digital marketing chap and our designer kind of just being ignored by the rest of the company and shouted at by sales for not giving them enough leads. So all of a sudden you're having to justify marketing's existence within a larger structure, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Which was another steep learning curve and one that I did actually really enjoy. I, I got to put a lot of new processes in place while I was there, which I which I was really grateful for. Um, and also, I said the biggest skill that I learned while I was there was HubSpot CRM management. Because we had a CRM of like 80, 90,000 people. I had never done anything on that scale before. And so I learned how to do like email automation and segmenting and like really, really specific campaigns. So there was... I think the most important thing, and I think a huge part of reason why people job hop so much nowadays, is the more often you move, the more you can learn. And I took completely different fundamental skill sets out of every job I worked at. What would you say was your biggest challenge? Okay, so a consistent theme throughout all of my jobs, except for one. I'll get onto why in a minute. Um, and I think a lot of this stems from my at that point on unrealized neurodivergence I had no idea that I was autistic and that I've got ADHD look back on it all makes sense now I have never really struggled to pick up technical skills design skills marketing skills like the 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 how always been very good at the how and I can pick things up very very quickly it's the people side of things um that's that was a very, very steep learning curve because every single job you go into, every business you work in, every office you walk into, there is a different unspoken social hierarchy. And like no one lays out to you what that is. You just have to figure it out. And it doesn't make any sense to me. Um, A huge part, a huge thing for me, I think moving to that first in-house B2B job was feeling like personally attacked by the fact that no one gave a shit about marketing and having to learn that it's not personal it's not personal it's not a reflection on the work that I'm doing it's that they just have never been educated on it and then finding a way to educate people without being seen as uh, an unreasonable woman which is a whole other thing (laughs) Yeah, because I, mean, I remember, you know, looking at it kind of the other side is when I was first exposed to um, you know, the world of corporate finance and, you know, someone from finance talking me through, well, you know, how they constructed budgets and P&L and stuff. Yes, yeah, so as far as I was concerned at that point, it was bloody magic, you know. Uh-huh. But it's the same, yeah, but I think we, we do forget sometimes that as marketers, actually, yeah, not everyone... Not every, not everyone gets it, understands yeah. it really, and it's yeah. As far as I can say, again, it's it's like it's like witchcraft, really. It's you know a black box. Yeah. It's, you... I um I remember having a conversation with the CEO. I think I'd literally been at the company for like 
maybe a month and by that point I was like I'd gone from this really creative environment to somewhere that was quite static and it became a much more technical marketing job like I said a lot of it was about CRM management and personalizing things it's where I learned a lot of SEO stuff as well um but I was so desperate to get back into the creative stuff that I I spoke to the CEO and I was like we need a new website our website is failing us there's like seven h1s on the homepage. what are we doing um also branding what like we don't have branding and his response was we have branding you can see our logo Ugh. like my soul left my body at that point and i was like okay this is never going to be a creative job um and so i just set about learning the more technical side of things um first time i'd ever encountered or even heard of semrush was at that job which seems like a ridiculous thing to say now <laughs> as an seo content writer um but yeah and then also crm management database management i did i spent so much time in emails doing email marketing and events as well because events was where most of the marketing budget went for that particular company um they exhibited at the uh, learning technologies every year and so like three to six months of my year was revolving around that one show. But even just listening, but just listening to that, you know, you rattled off about so you know four or five different areas that you know you mm. typically you typically wouldn't be exposed to. Yeah, if you were part of a much much larger team, you know, you might have yeah. focused on a particular area in your corner. But there's there's gosh, there's loads there to go at, isn't there? Mm. This is uh, this is also a big part of the reason why I like working with small marketing teams, because I get it. <laughs> I have been like that marketing team. Both of those people left. And for a while I was standalone. I was a one person marketing team there. And then they brought someone else on. And then the pandemic happened and I got made redundant. Yada, yada, yada. So I have done the whole I'm the only content person in this entire company. I've done the whole, I am the only marketing person in this entire company. And I, it's really important to me that my clients feel seen and feel heard, not by someone who can just go, oh, I understand academically what this is like, but by someone who has the lived experience. Yeah, what you've um, what you've got as well is you know, you've got two quite powerful things coming together here. You've got that, that whole real you know, boots on the ground experience but then you know the benefit of a highly creative agency experience you know whack the two whack the two together and you've got something really really powerful to work with yeah that's that's the hope I mean I I certainly that's how I see it it can be really difficult to communicate that to other people um because I I'm in this really awkward space where on one end I get people who see my experience, who meet me, who understand how much I care about all of this and how well I understand all the pieces that fit together. And their attitude is very much like, we'll pay whatever you need to charge us. We trust you. You're the expert, favorite type of clients, obviously. And then you have on the other side, and I do still love to work with independent business owners, but people who have to be so careful with budget and they want to understand everything that goes into what I'm doing, but they don't understand because they don't have the experience in marketing and then it's really difficult to communicate 
the direct value. A lot of people want to see marketing as an ROI kind of exercise. Um, but I can't sit here and tell you that, you know, streamlining the sitemap of your website and improving your UX through your copywriting is going to increase your sales by 237%. Like, it doesn't work like that. I can't be that specific. No, so, there's a, yeah, there's a longer term sort of compounding effect yeah, with all of these things as well. It's also like trust building and stuff. Like even with the work that I do, let alone with bigger companies, if people are going to invest three, four, five, six, seven, ten grand in a website, it's, a lot of people will take the time to save up for that because they want to get it done by the right people. And I've had people approach me who have been like, I've wanted to work with you for a year. I'm still saving up money. I'll probably be ready in about six months, but I like I do want to work with you. And so even as a one person business, sometimes my lead time is 18 months. But it's it's really important that you keep building your reputation and showcasing your brand to the best of its ability. And all of that, all roads point back to your website, right? It's a huge part of why I love websites so much. All roads point back to that one place. Um and so even if your website doesn't have the best rankings in the world, if it's not number one on Google, all of your marketing channels still point back to your website and your website needs to be the absolute epitome of all of the the joy and logic and wonder that your business and your services have to offer, regardless of what you're offering and who you're offering it to. back to here mm. is yeah we're talking about you know you were you're now in a really really small you know you're a very very small marketing team in a um in the midst of a, um, a large com- large company yes. there's all this opportunity for for development mm-hmm. but how are you how are you going about that are there other colleagues in uh, other teams that you're um but you're sort of pulling on and, and learning from it. you're spending time with with, with sales so yeah very very rarely does development happen by osmosis yeah uh not for lack of trying that was a, a tricky one um so i really wanted to get more embedded in the sales team and i started going to the sales meetings as the marketing rep um and being like, hey, this is what we're up to. This is the information I need from you. Can I sit in on demo calls? All of the, all of the sort of stuff that I tell new marketers going into their first B2B jobs to do. Yeah, not right, enough. Is, pe- not enough people do that. As far as I, as far as you, I see. you can't, you cannot understand how your customers are communicating until you sit in on sales demo calls. You also need to make sure the marketing and sales is one cohesive experience. So you need to understand how the sales reps are communicating your products and your services to your customers, because like otherwise you can do all the best marketing in the world. If someone but like buys into your marketing, gets through to sales, and they're being sold a completely different thing, they're not going to convert. And that that's just a right hand not talking to left hand issue. Yeah, um, yeah, it's it's madness when you stop and think about it. But there mm-hmm. are more more times often than not when I've experienced and seen 
marketing versus sales or sales versus marketing and yeah I've definitely experienced that and it hurts I hate it um in that particular company there was a really big expectation that marketing works for sales no that's fucking bullshit marketing doesn't work for sales they have to work together and I might be biased here but I actually think that sales should be an extension of marketing because the way that b2b business works has changed you know 10 20 30 years ago it was a case of marketing was there to support sales and create sales enablement materials help them to create presentations obviously there'll be the advertising and stuff but a huge part of marketing's job was to literally hold sales's hand and go here is everything you could possibly need but now people want to especially when it, even like big purchases uh there was a report recently from mckinsey and co i was watching some content on tiktok from an incredible woman called b2b jade i highly recommend you look her up um and she was talking about a mckinsey and co report and it was something like that it, i can't remember the specific statistic but like the majority of business owners are willing to spend tens of thousands of pounds having never spoken to a sales representative and people nowadays want more and more self-service they want things to be clearer they want things to be more obvious they want more information uh, like as much information as possible without having to deal with sales reps so now marketing does the majority of the legwork legwork and sales closes the opportunity yeah and it's a huge and a huge opportunity as well for actually you know um well well-paid sales professionals to want to go after higher value opportunities yeah manage key accounts and not be scrambling around running after um yeah small opportunities here personally i think there needs to be a fundamental change in the sales commission based model because it encourages bad work practices but that's that is a whole other thing (laughs) uh that's one of the big things i learned working in b2b was how much that messes things up is because people don't talk to each other and departments don't talk to each other. I spent so much time acting as like an impromptu project manager when I was agency side, because to me, connecting all of the pieces together, no matter what I'm working on, is really, really important, which is why like I learned how to edit, crop, retouch photos. I learned how to do HTML and CSS coding. I learned how to do SEO stuff. I learned how to do all sorts of things so that if I needed a quick job doing, I could just do it myself. And so that I understood everything enough that I could wrangle projects together. And that's just a huge part of my personality and how my brain works. That's carried through every single one of my jobs. Um, and in the B2B world, it, that kind of came out as me trying desperately to mend the relationship between marketing and sales. I will say now I failed. It didn't work. Um, from what I can gather, from what I can see from the outside, it looks like it's better now. And I definitely got some things in motion while I was there, but I never got to see it through. And that sucks. What went wrong then in terms of that, in terms of approach? Anything you anything you tackled differently? There was definitely a clash of personalities. Um, I don't necessarily want to get too deep into this, but like I am quite headstrong. I have a lot of opinions and I have a general disdain for assumed authority. Um, So when there are 
a group of men who all look identical all it's a bit of a boys club sales at that point was was a massive yeah. boys club and it was run by this like rugby lad type don't get me wrong he is an exceptional salesman i can't deny that he is very very good at his job but it was a bit of a kind of i'm bigger than you i'm more important than you like you're just a silly little woman he never said that but that's the vibe that i got and mm. it really upset me there was just a chronic women were not listened to in that company uh and in a number of places i've worked women are talked over are not listened to their work is rewritten and overdone um because a lot of women just aren't taken seriously in the workplace especially like i'm 30 years old now but at that point i was in my mid-20s and i looked even younger and that massively worked against me. People just did not want to take me seriously. Um, so that was a huge problem. There was also, I, I'll be honest here, I did lack some people skills. I probably still do. Um, the, uh, the, the, the autism kind of makes the social stuff difficult. And this constant sense of this overwhelming sense of justice that I have where I see mm. something being done incorrectly and I don't care who is doing it. It doesn't occur to me at that moment that who is doing it or who is saying it is important. I will just, I will be the person. If someone says, has anyone got any questions or feedback? I'll be the person to raise my hand and be like, that's not the logical way of doing things. Have you tried doing this instead? And it turns out you're not supposed to do that in front of other people. But then don't we all don't we all suffer professionally if actually you don't put your hand up and go actually yeah because mm. maybe we haven't thought of doing doing that and you make perfectly sensible yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think as much as um as much as instinctively you want to go well actually have you have have you worked a little bit on um on on delivering those messages I think there's also a bit of um, you know everyone else also checking themselves and going actually are we always listening yeah um i mean like i have been tone placed my entire career always um i think some of it because i'm young some of it because i'm female some of it because i'm autistic and some of it because my delivery can be really fucking poor like i'm not gonna sit here and say all of these systemic issues are against me like th they are but I've also got to hold my hands up and be like, hey, I was not the most mature in that situation. I spoke out of emotion. I did not speak out of logic. Um, and I think that's been a really hard lesson to learn over the years. It's, it's something that I love about working from home and working for myself, where if I get a bit of feedback from a client or I have like a really overbearing client who's very demanding on me and doesn't trust me to do my job and starts micromanaging. It happens occasionally. I have the space to sit back and be like, I'm going to deal with that tomorrow once I've slept on it and I've distanced myself and I don't have someone breathing down my neck going, why has this not been done yet? Because I don't have a boss. It's just me. Yeah, and you could take a moment if you yeah, need to I just. Yeah, I have the freedom to process things in the time I need to process them, which is something that I never had working in-house and I think has been the biggest change in my 
people management and client management skill set and like learning how to challenge people in a way that is helpful and not in a way that's going to be perceived as me trying to undermine someone. So there are definitely skills that can be learned then. Mm-hmm. Cause I, cause I think often it can be a little bit of a misconception that, you know, uh, well, if I'm uh, if I'm a complete straight shooter, then that's just me and there's not a lot I can really do about mm. do, do about that. Everyone else has just gotta 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 suck it up. Um yeah. but it seems like you know you've you're you're finding that balance now between, you know, no bullshit, yeah. no jargon, yeah. but maybe a little bit of sugar with the uh, with the pill. Yeah, I am definitely learning um in the time that I've been freelancing, like working directly with business owners people have a much bigger vested interest in what's happening um, and the work that I'm providing. Sometimes that means they come with really heightened emotions. Sometimes it means they're really micromanaging. And sometimes they're like, you know what? I trust you to do this. And I'm investing a lot of money for you to do this properly. Just get on with it. Let me know if you need anything. Um, you know, and a huge part of this for me has been learning how to adapt my communication style to different people. I my default setting is blunt. Like I just there's no sugar coating. I say it as it is. And I would say a good 60, 70 percent of the people I work with love that. And it's a big part of the reason why they work with me. Like they see my posts on LinkedIn. They read my LinkedIn profile, my website, my new website is I'm steering hard into that side of my personality um because i i want to work with people who can take direct and blunt feedback um but yeah like i've been working really hard to figure out how to adapt to different communication styles and what different people need from me because you could say the same thing to five people and they will hear five different things and it took me an embarrassingly long time to learn that a lot of people don't say what they mean. Um, yeah. And because of that, they interpret honesty as something at like subtext that isn't there. Um, so, yeah, learning how to do that has been a huge learning curve. That's been probably the biggest learning curve I've made since I went freelance. But yeah, I think, yeah, there's, there's an important lesson there about, you know, being, you know, being unapologetically you and it's mm. something that I think yeah for me personally it's definitely come with age that <laughs> yeah I'm less inclined to start editing out bits of mm-hmm. my um, bits of my personality now people mm. who know me very well will know yeah I can have a hideously dark sense sense of humor where mm-hmm. yeah I, I probably get cancelled I probably will get cancelled right. at, at, at some point down down the line yes but um yeah I might not bring all of that to um to 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 the workplace, but I'll certainly yeah. um but I've certainly become less inclined to you know completely airbrush parts of my personality. I'll go well, mm. I am I am me, yeah. I have yeah. the belief that I'm good at what I do, but I'm not going to um I'm not going to yeah put this whole coat of varnish over me and pretend mm-hmm. to be something and someone I'm just fundamentally not. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I think like I know we've briefly touched on the kind of the neurodivergent side of things, but if you take that to an extreme, 
and that is what autistic masking is like it's like having to rehearse every interaction that you have with someone having to monitor your facial expressions am i making the right amount of eye contact oh no while i was thinking about eye contact i stopped listening to what that person was saying my foot's tapping on the floor because I'm nervous. I need to stop that because it's irritating people. It's just this constant internal monologue of monitoring everything that you say and you do. And I have never been hugely adept at masking. I can to an extent, but as soon as I'm focused on something, I look like the most miserable motherfucker you ever saw in your life. Right. When I'm focused, I look angry. I've been told my concentration face is aggressive. Um, I have no control over that. It's just what happens when I'm concentrating. But there's also things like if I'm stressed, as I often was in the workplace, because I was also overstimulated by social interactions, overhead lighting, music, background talking, all of that, then my ability to mask my behaviour and present the most uh, acceptable version of myself was really hindered. And it became that much harder, which made me more prone to burning out. Um, working in an office is like a genuine psychological hellscape for me and is not something I will ever do again. No, it, it's often viewed as, well, that's the, well, particularly pre-pandemic, mm -hmm. definitely. It was, yeah, the office was your only real sort of place to go to work and build experience you know and go and work for a firm and um and you know move on and up yeah in your in your career so for a, yeah if if there are sort of quite large groups of people where you know, hellscape is um it's quite quite a good word that i will um but i will take with me now then um aren't, aren't we as businesses just missing out on huge huge swathes of talent here yeah yeah, and there's also like I think that businesses have disability is a protected characteristic, right? If you want to talk about the recruitment side of things, disability is a protected characteristic. And a lot of people are not willing to disclose autism, ADHD, various things like that in the workplace because they are in for the most part invisible disabilities. Um, and you can get heavily penalized for needing accommodations even though legally businesses can't do that um you know i think I, I mentioned when we spoke before about the pretty shocking statistics of how many or rather how few uh, autistic people are employed full-time um and as far as i'm aware that current statistic is 15 percent one five yeah i think last time there was a, there was a third as my as my jaw dropped to the floor yeah. because i I was genuinely well my initial reaction was that I was surprised but then as I started to well mm. rewind re rewind rewind the tape of sort of my career because actually I can't recall many if any instances where yeah I've worked with anyone or interviewed anyone yeah. who you, know, you would you, you would sort of typify as neurodivergence I just yes I just drew a blank yeah, so here, here's a really interesting thing, right, and a really common um, thing with, particularly with high-masking high autistic women, a very, very common story that I share. I am really fucking good at job interviews. 
I'm amazing at job interviews because I can read the room, adjust my personality. I can emote in the right ways, give the right answers, make people laugh, figure out their sense of humour. Like there is a certain level of hypervigilance that comes with being autistic that if you are able to highly mask, which is a privilege in itself, to be honest, if you are able to do that, you can walk into a room having done your research and instantly know how you are supposed to act, what you're supposed to say and how you're supposed to perform in order to get people to like you because you've spent your entire life performing in order to get people to like you. And then one month, two months, six months down the line, when you've got the job and your boss or the person who hires you realise realizes that you are not the person that they interviewed, things start to come apart and things go wrong. So how do we start better, better, better supporting colleagues in that um in that situation because it just feels it just feels a super it just feels really really yeah a real a real shame to let Mm -hmm. talent exit our businesses and not and and, and not harness that you know we talk a lot about diversity Mm -hmm. right and actually uh, often it you know it's it's a bit of an exercise in you know have we got all the pantone colors on the um on the on the chart whereas actually yeah. a diversity of thought is yeah. um is, is also really important but how do we stop that sort of exiting the business and um and just becoming and, and people getting burnt out so a huge amount of it comes down to managerial structure and having empathetic management um middle management are some of the most important people in a company. And they are also some of the most overstressed and overworked people because they are taking shit from the bottom and shit from the top. However, if you can have people in your company who are empathetic, kind, caring, considerate, and are able to make space for their employees, it makes the world of difference. So you need to make sure that you have a company structure in place where Every employee has optional access to things like a weekly one to one. Occasionally catching up with your employees in like a team monthly meeting isn't enough because that shows that your team members are numbers on a sheet. They are not individual people and there needs to be a level of investment in individual people and just naturally accommodating people's needs without needing to have formal disclosure, without needing to have a formal diagnosis. Because there's also a case of women are severely underdiagnosed. And a lot of women in the workplace might not know, much like myself, they might have no fucking idea that they are autistic, that they have ADHD, that they have these issues that are stop it, that are equal parts making them amazing at their jobs and terrible at their jobs for completely different reasons because neurodivergent people are not able to tick the neurotypical boxes of and the neurotypical workday structure social hierarchy social events it's things like socializing is not compulsory removing the idea of meritocracy which is based on who you know who you spend time with it's supposed to be based on the value of your 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 work but it's not meritocracy is a myth which is a whole other conversation that we can have another time Mm. um but there's so much in the way of workplace progression 
that is based on have you been out for drinks with this person? Have you spent enough time with that person? You're more likely to get a promotion if you spent time socially with the people who are making those decisions. And that's incredibly unfair to people who struggle in a social perspective. There's also there's little things you can do from the start of the recruitment process. So if you are recruiting, you can provide the option. Do you want to have an in-person interview? Do you want to do it remotely and let the candidates choose? When someone comes onto a call, do you want cameras on, cameras off? It's little things like that, that from the word go, shows that a level of consideration has been made to different people's levels of needs. Do you know what you've already got me thinking about, you know, certain things that I've just definitely taken taken for granted when I've been a bit like, oh, oh, why is why is so-and-so not got my camera on? Oh, that's a bit that's that's a bit strange. But um, I, I think like having that conversation is really important. So at the start of a call, either either when someone you're doing the, you know, the final emails that go out, like book a time for your call or whatever, either have a checkbox that says cameras on, cameras off, or at the start of the call, um, sit there and be like, hey, like I'm, I'm glad that we've seen you and you've seen me. Do you want to have cameras on or cameras off? Because by asking that question like person to person, I think it it just creates a very clear show of solidarity. Yeah, it's okay for you to do this. Yeah. We're going to have we're going we'll have a good conversation either yeah. way. It doesn't matter. Yeah, absolutely. And there's there's also it's it's amazing how many things in the recruit I've I've worked a lot in the HR space as well, so I have a lot of thoughts crossing over these two areas. Um, it's incredible as well, like how often um, people will cite things like if you have two interview candidates who both seem on paper equally qualified for the job and, you know, it's gone really well. It's very, very close. Things, little things such as this person didn't make much eye contact or this person wasn't paying attention because they were looking around the room. Eye contact is really difficult for autistic people and for people with ADHD. And there's also there's also this I could literally talk about this for hours. There are so many things like being forced to sit in a chair in a certain way for an hour for an interview can be really difficult for people who are hypermobile, suffer from chronic pain, people with ADHD. Like that, there's just there is so much that recruitment and HR processes do not acknowledge about the disabled experience. And because of that, not only are they unknowingly discriminating against disabled people and shutting them out, they're also, from like a slightly more cutthroat business perspective, losing out on really incredible people who could bring a lot of success to their business and diverse perspectives to their business practices by not accommodating that. Yeah, I mean, you know, taking your ability to, you know, to take take a business Put through all the um, all, mm-hmm. all the BS and mm-hmm. come out with, with with content that cleanly and clearly artic- articulates that. That's that's money. Yeah, that's money to a business right there. And for for what I'll for what I'll typify as a, a few superficial things, 
oh she didn't have a camera on when she was um, mm-hmm. when she was talking to me it's yes. yeah we say we're closing we're closing the door there mm-hmm. so yes in, in terms of your your own journey what what was it that what was the prompt that got you actually do you know what corporate life I'm done I'm done with this I'm going to do my mm-hmm. own thing was there was there a particular point or death oh, by a thousand cuts it was death by a thousand cuts death by a million fucking cuts man it was a <laughs> lot um it kind of honestly the the beginning of the end was the pandemic right which I know is a case for a lot of people I went from I was very lucky that I was already working hybrid right so by that point my degree had finished it was full time so I was three days in the office two days at home the pandemic happens I'm then working five days a week from home and realizing how much it was taking a toll on me to be working in an office and commuting my commute was an hour and a half each way um so doing all of that commuting and stuff yeah it was really taking its toll on me um so I was let go from that job And that was a job where I started as one of three marketing people. It was then just me. And then someone else was brought in against my recommendation. And he then recommended that I was cut from the marketing team because it was an unnecessary expense. Um, It was a whole thing. And then to be fair to him, he then went on to like create and lead a very successful marketing team and things were getting much better after I left um but that was largely a structural issue anyway don't want to get into that so I was let go from that job um after slaving away working all kinds of crazy hours because I had been left on my own to market this massive company that was growing and growing and growing every other team was expanding and I felt completely abandoned. And then I was put on furlough because I was completely burnt out. And then I was let go. And I nearly went freelance then because I kind of had this realisation after many years of pouring everything I had into the jobs that I was working at, that no one cares. Like no one gives a shit about me as a person, about my life outside of work. And I'm not saying this is true of every job you work at. I just I think I had quite an unfortunate run. Um, Now, three months later, after an entire summer of interviewing for jobs, debating whether I should go freelance, I then landed a job at another company. It was a significant step down, both in terms of pay and responsibility. But that job gave me hope. And that job gave me hope because that was where I I worked for a wonderful, delightful, beautiful human being called Jared, who is the only good manager I've ever had. (laughs) And he was amazing. Um, But I left that job a year later because I was bored and I was understimulated. And then I went back into a I'm the only marketing person in this company kind of job. And I lasted there for three months before I left because it was a total fucking nightmare. So let's talk about Jared for a moment. Love Jared. Um, Because, yeah, a lot of what what I see a lot of people struggling with is, Mm -hmm. you know, this whole concept, you know, what what is being a good manager and managing people all all about? It sounds like, you know, you've had an absolutely fantastic experience here. So what what did he do right? Like. 
I don't want to minimise it, but he like he treated me like a person. <laughs> that was a really huge part of it. He was so welcoming and understanding. Um and he felt safe. And he always made me feel safe. Um and after years and years and years of being treated awfully at many different workplaces, um I'm literally getting emotional <laughs> talking about this. I can't explain to you how good of a person Jared is. Um, so I I knew very early on that Jared was like a safe space of a person because I obviously I'm not going to go into details, but I had quite a significant uh, thing happen in my personal life that kind of meant I had to overhaul a lot of things and like I had been working there for three weeks and I was like I'm sorry for no notice but I can't work next week I I need the week off and his response was okay approve the holiday and then when I got back he was like are you okay are you safe and I was like damn this is a person who really cares about me and doesn't just care about my work output he was like I know you've only just started working here, but I care about you. Are you OK? What can I do? And it blew my mind. I, I, I have never. That doesn't in a take much to do. That doesn't no. take much to do, does it? And I I'd never had that in a work environment before, ever. Um, so, yeah, that was wonderful. And then he just continued to be wonderful. And I discovered the autism and the ADHD uh, and all that fun stuff while he was my boss and I had always been kind of ostracized for the way that I communicated and the way that I um, explained myself the way that I processed information but I felt at that point that I could just tell him and I did and I was scared to tell him because I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to get fired because that's literally the experience that I'd had up until that point. And I told him he was like, oh, OK. What do you need from me? And like th this is the big thing about Jared, right? All of our interactions as boss and employee, it was never about him. He never made it about himself. He never made it about the company. Everything was holding space for me and what I needed. And it's incredible what that can do yeah, to a person's safety and comfort. I've, I've hired you because you're capable. Now I'm just going to yes. clear the way for you to do yes. what you need to do. Yeah, it's, it's recognising that you are a person beyond your function at the company. And so often because people like middle management in particular, they're, they're facing so much pressure from the people above them. Right. That, and I think that pressure can often come out as frustration aimed at their employees for not being perfect or for having a crisis which takes away from all the other things that I need to deal with. And Jared is was and continues to be just such a completely unselfish person. I'm still friends with him like we still talk and stuff so like it's, that's not just who he is in work that's just who he is as a person I don't care what anyone says there is not there is not this work and personal 
itself you know some yeah. people try to put this huge big dividing line in between and you know you step it you step yeah, in one and out of the other people right? who say bullshit like leave your home life at the door absolutely not you are a person first you are an employee second always and too many people forget that so be more jared basically be more jared So you're about a year and a half in to the wonderful world of freelancing. Um, mm-hmm. What's 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 next? What's what's the big what's the big idea? Is there a plan, or are you just seeing seeing where it takes you? I'm seeing where it takes me, but I'm actually in kind of a really exciting place at the moment because the first year of freelancing was just like, how the fuck do I freelance? How does this work? What do I do? And now I actually feel like I'm an established business owner. Um, I just had a photo shoot done. I've got a new website going live next month. I'm about to launch a new program, which helps to teach people copywriting skills and marketing skills that they can then move forward and, you know, use in the rest of their business. It's a four week program um, named much like a lot of my other stuff. It's called Write Your Own Fucking Content. Um, Waitlist is open now. Cheeky plug for my services. but yeah so that that's going to be quite a big thing I think I honestly wasn't really expecting anyone to pay attention to it but I've got three people beta testing the program next month and I've got 12 people on the wait list for it already um so I I actually think that's going to be next I think that's going to be a huge turning point in my business is doing a lot more one-to-one working with people um I'm also finding that I'm doing a lot more SEO work I love a website project websites will always be my first love but at the moment I think that's just out of most people's budget range is investing in a website because to do a website justice you've got to invest at least five grand into that project and a lot of people don't have that right now so I'm doing a lot of things like taking people's current websites fixing their SEO which is a whole thing in of itself because there's a lot of issues in there um but yeah I think for me The future of freelancing is very much focused on consultation, training, working one to one with people, which is the sort of thing I love doing. You know, for for the longest time, I kind of always had this catchphrase of like, oh, I hate people. I don't. I hate groups of people. I love working one on one with people. Um, I'm also speaking at Brighton SEO again in September, which will be really, really fun. I loved it last year, so I'm really glad there bringing me on again this year and I, I look forward to that I've actually made like a group of friends that go to Brighton SEO every year which is completely unexpected and absolutely wonderful uh, lots 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 in the pipeline and you're yes. firmly in the driving seat as well which is yeah which, which is, is so nice so needed <laughs> so as a so the last thing before we wrap ourselves up I guess um <laughs> biggest cock up and greatest triumph I okay I've I've really thought about this in terms of my biggest cock up I think my biggest mistake in my marketing career was leaving Jared (laughs) and leaving that job but that said had I not left that job 
and spent three months working in an absolute hellhole, I don't think I would be freelance now. So it's the biggest regret that it's the biggest mistake that I've made, but I can't regret it because without it, I wouldn't be freelancing and I love freelancing. Um, greatest triumph. I'm just going to straight out say uh, was speaking at Brighton SEO last year. It was the first event, first conference I'd ever spoken at. It was like a packed out room 10 minutes before it even started. There was barely standing room in there. There was about 750, 800 people. Over 3000 people have watched it online. It, it was absolutely phenomenal. Oh, that's a big that's a big opening night. It was. Yeah, I was I was pretty, pretty happy with that. Not going to lie to you. Um, the talk was called What the Clusterfuck, and it was all about writing topic clusters when you've got a very small marketing team. And the audience was kind of half people who read the description and were like, yes, I'm a one person marketing team. I'm drowning. This sounds like good advice. And half people who saw the title and thought this is going to be funny. Um, and apparently I lived up to the hype which is good. The response I got from it was incredible. I met so many wonderful people. I got some really good business out of it. It was that that's been the highlight of my entire marketing career so hot so far by quite so a long stretch. Anyone, so if anyone wants to go and watch that, I can just type in what the clusterfuck on YouTube and you'll and you'll pop up, yeah? Actually, yeah, it is actually on YouTube. Uh, the 10 most popular talks from each conference get uploaded onto their YouTube channel and mine snuck in there at number 10. So... <laughs> Well, there you go. You've made it on the Brighton SEO channel. Well, we'll, we'll send really you cool. some more. We'll send you some more viewers moment, momentarily once this goes out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, along with the talk as well. If you watch it until the end, there's a QR code you can scan with a bunch of resources you can download because I tried to fit too much into 20 minutes. Um, and I was like, this isn't going to work. I'm going to make a bunch of checklists for people. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thanks ever so much for coming on. It's been an absolute, uh, absolute pleasure. And um, hopefully we'll have you me. again soon. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much.